Aloha, this is Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. It is Monday, October 9th. We pause to reflect as we reach the two-month anniversary of the Maui wildfires. It also marks the return of visitors to the Valley Isle. We check in on the condition of trees in Lahaina Town, nurturing what survived and replanting for the future. We'll get an update on the historic banyan tree and talk about the old breadfruit groves that once dotted the landscape there. And we spotlight a collection of short stories from a local author to get you in the mood for the Hawaii Book and Music Festival. You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. In spite of a petition urging the governor to push off this weekend's reopening of West Maui to tourism, visitors are making their way back to the islands, although very slowly. HPR reporter Kuvehi Reishi is there on Maui and joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. You know, there was a lot of anticipation around this October 8th reopening date, what it could bring in terms of economic boost uh, to the island. Would the tourists be respectful of the situation on the ground? And so far, it is off to a slow start. Hotels uh, right now from Kapalua to Kahana are officially open to visitors as of Sunday, but they're not exactly packed. Occupancy rates from the Maui Hotel and Lodging Association show a very slow ramp up this week. They've got West Maui at about 12% occupancy, so lots of empty rooms still sitting there. Um, The industry doesn't have high expectations for, you know, a a big boost in the immediate future. No onslaught of tourists coming today or tomorrow, but gradually uh, over time. October is typically that, that shoulder season, right? And Maui was already trending down year after year into the shoulder season but the holidays of course may bring a little bit of a boost with those uh, snowbirds coming in as usual but a maui county council member tamara paulton says she's concerned that west maui isn't prepared uh, to welcome tourists back i met with her at her home in napili yesterday and she says she's already received several calls from concerned community members about you know tourists doing u-turns in traffic and pulling over to take pictures tourists taking pictures of their house where it was people complaining about you know as concierge they're being asked like where's the activities like luau's or things like that and then be the tourists being frustrated that they have to go to kihei to see a luau or they have to go to ma'alaya to get on some of the boat activities you know like in in the announcement of opening up West Maui, it's almost as though um, they're being duped, you know, like, oh, West Maui is open, but there's no Lahaina, there's very limited restaurants, there's very limited activities, and very limited infrastructure. Yeah, we know that's a, a concern for a lot of the residents there, but, you know, we heard Josh Green say, you know, it's going to be an onslaught of visitors at all, it's going to be slow, and, and, and that seems to be, you know, what we're seeing. 
Right, right. So some um, in terms of the infrastructure there, it was interesting because I went, I went to go check out the. Um, there's six grocery stores on that side, uh, but some are still without water, and some homes and businesses are without electricity, and then uh, some roads are still closed, of course. Um, and so you know, it's the but it's it's the displaced residents and, and sort of their emotional well-being that Paulton is probably most concerned about. And that's something we've been hearing, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the petition signed by more than 16,000 calling on Governor Green to delay the reopening. And then the Maui County Council uh, unanimously passing a resolution Friday asking to postpone it until community stability benchmarks are set. So I think in the coming uh, weeks as uh, each phase, so there's three phases right now in this reopening uh, before the next phase is uh, being get, um, will uh, continue to get into, the previous phase will be assessed. And so hopefully some of those community stability benchmarks, uh, schools, you know, opening back up, uh, folks getting into more permanent uh, housing, those types of benchmarks will be set as they reopen more. Uh, but Lisa Paulson over at uh, the Maui Hotel and Lodging Association says, you know, should, the hope is that these tourism dollars that come from this reopening uh, can really help in the recovery effort. What I have been bringing up, and I think that is very relevant, is a lot of the revenue that is being generated by tourism and will continue to be generated can be used for recovery efforts and rebuilding and I am hopeful as a long-term Maui resident that Lahaina comes back for the people and what they want it to be like. So I'm, I'm holding out on hope that um, there's a lot of community input, but I also do see the economic benefit of the tourism dollars. Yeah, Friday we saw Mayor uh, Bisson you know, release a message. You know, I don't know how widely distributed that is. You know, it's running on TV, but is it in the hotel rooms? Is it on the uh, airplanes? Is it at the airport? Right. I did not see or hear anything in my flight, but I came from Oahu, and there was nothing at the airport itself. Uh, but perhaps in the hotels, I'm not saying in a hotel, so I mm -hmm. didn't know. But I, I, I haven't seen much of it. There were some. Um, those um, solar sort of marquees along the highways telling folks that, you know, when you get into Lahaina that this is closed and, and don't go past here and there. Uh, but other than that, uh, there wasn't much in terms of messaging. Um, but in media and, and, and sort of in um, coverage I've seen of the, of the area, we've been seeing a lot there. But, the, the, you know, this decision to to reopen parts of West Maui was definitely has definitely been a, a divisive force in, in on the island itself because you've got businesses completely um, dependent on those tourism dollars struggling, uh, struggling because of um, you know the mixed messaging that came in after the fire about don't come to Maui and then it was oh no come to Maui but not Lahaina <laughs> that uh, has had that ripple effect on a lot of businesses and. Uh, then you've got folks uh, in Lahaina, of course, itself, still grieving. Um, some not ready to get back to work, but others, you know, not able to, unable to not go back to work because they need to, um, they need the money. And so we had a glimpse of this during the COVID-19 pandemic when, you know, tourism shut down and the travel ban was in order. 
Uh, but uh, Timothy Lara, founder of Hawaiian Paddle Sports, says this is different. People want a diversified economy and people want to see some other industry other than the visitor industry. You know, during the pandemic, we had a, a great opportunity to kind of reset and re reshape and pivot. And, and that didn't happen. And I don't know if that was due to lack of political will or just there not being another viable alternative. But the difference between what we're going through now and what we went through during the pandemic is there's not additional resources for business owners or for employees. You know, there's not a second unemployment coming from the federal government. There's not uh, adaptability grants and PPP grants and other things coming to business owners. And so in this situation that we're currently in, if you didn't lose your housing, either as a renter, as an owner, there's really not resources available for you. And so our employees, you know, that have three kids and are trying to pay their mortgage or pay their rent and put food on the table and buy clothes for their kids to go back to school, they can't do it. Right. And, and I think that that's important. Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, we went from over tourism, right? Too many people, too many crowds and too many places and then no tourism. Uh, yeah, you want to be able to strike a balance. There'll be a conversation coming out of the current situation, especially on Maui. You know, for visitor spending statewide, Maui accounts for about 15% of that, comparatively Waikiki, right, 35%. And so a big amount for such a small island. And, and of course, with the infrastructure in place, uh, in the reinvestments and, and or investments in um, kind of bolstering that infrastructure, not only for the local community, but for that change will be important. Uh, but in terms of this uh, phased in reopening, right? So right now, about uh, three miles or a three mile stretch of, of the coast is open uh, to, to tourists. I understand some businesses have been operating uh, to local residents, welcoming local residents, uh, but also tourists will come in for a meal or two at a restaurant up there. And so it's not like tourists weren't here, but now the messaging around it is a bit more, yes, please come. The next phase uh, will happen and work its way south and east towards Kaanapali. And of course, the last phase to reopen will include the hotels where most of the displaced Lahaina residents are sheltered. Yeah, and the message, come, but be kind, be sensitive. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, the fa uh, families there have just been through so much, so, you know, y you just want to be careful. But thank you so much, Kuvehi. Yep, thanks. Mahalo. That was Kuvehi Rishi talking to us from Maui as we move into the third month since the fatal fires. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mid-Pacific, committed to sparking creativity and unlocking student potential with deeper learning. Announcing an open house Saturday, October 21st, registration at midpac.edu. The National Science Foundation has funded its first ever research hub focused on indigenous knowledge. The $30 million investment will fund projects from ancient clam farming to mapping climate change on tribal lands that it's rude trying to bring community in place back into science in a more effective and ethical way. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the Daily. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to supporting the people and places affected by the Maui wildfires. Donations accepted at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash Maui Strong. Thank you.
is what the Lahaina banyan tree represented to many. The exceptional tree began showing signs of rejuvenation following the deadly blaze. But there are other trees in town. Did you know about the historic Ulu Grove? We turn to HPR reporter Cassie Ordonio. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yes. You know, I mean, we, like I said, we've been hearing lots about the, the banyan, but tell us about Ulu. Yeah, and we're we're seeing that much of the attention has been put on Lahaina's banyan tree. Some sprouts of green that we've seen on social media has been used as a symbol of hope and recovery for West Maui's historic town. But experts say that it's not the only plant or tree that should receive attention. While some experts are caring for the 150-year-old banyan tree, experts are specifically caring for ulu, also known as breadfruit trees. And Lahaina was once covered in breadfruit groves. That's according to Noah Kekueva Lincoln. He's an associate professor at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. He specializes in indigenous crops and cropping systems. I know this is kind of in the day of Indigenous Peoples Day, so it's good to talk about indigenous trees. And... The conditions of Ulu that he told me is that they were completely charred from top to the bottom, much like the banyan tree. So these trees are in pretty poor condition. And what they do to check on the condition of the trees, they dig about three feet into the ground and look at their root systems. And what they found is that some of them were completely cooked. So the fire was hot enough to burn maybe about two, three feet into the ground. And... um, There were some trees that were saveable and how you can tell once you cut the roots and if there's any vibrancy, they can use that for propagation. And if you have your own plants, when you propagate a plant, you either cut some of the stems of the the leaves on the top, put it in water, roots will grow. But for trees in particular, I've seen how you propagate a tree, you would normally cut the roots and then you put them into a dampened soil into Mm. a controlled environment and roots will sprout that way. And Noah told me in order to propagate those plants, when you propagate a uh, ulu tree, especially in the roots, they can generate up to maybe 200 to 300 trees just from that one root. That's amazing. And so far, he said at least one breadfruit tree is good in good enough condition to propagate it. Noah says Ulu has also cultural importance in Lahaina. These Ulu trees that date back, honestly, probably to the 1400s or so, you know, I think represent a time when Lahaina was self-sufficient, was, you know, a vibrant, productive landscape um, before it was vastly transformed, you know, through colonization, through the sugar plantations, and more recently through tourism and, you know, extractive economies. And, you know, preserving that imagery and that representation of, again, what those trees symbolize, I think, is is really, really important. Yeah, I know we had somebody on the show saying that the Ulu tree, he thought, was a representation of colonialism. You know, so it, it it's just fascinating then to hear this history about the ulu groves. And especially for ulu, I know um, if you note that Noah said that these trees date back maybe 14, in the 1400s or even further back. So this predates the banyan tree. And ulu is originally from Papua New Guinea, or at the time it was New Guinea at the time. Uh, that's in uh, Melanesia. 
and it was brought by Polynesian voyagers. And since then, breadfruit has been this source of food and cultural significance. And these breadfruit trees once blanketed Lahaina. Uh, the historical name for Lahaina is Malu'ulu Olele, which means the shaded breadfruit grove of Lele. And one may question on how these trees, how do they survive in such dry climates, especially on Maui and in Lahaina? Well, Lahaina was once a coastal wetland, that's according to NOAA. Lahaina is actually in, uh, Lahaina town is actually at sea level, and these underground aquifers were generated by the mountain range. You know, if you look at the rainfall of Lahaina, it's way too dry for breadfruit. It's, it, breadfruit should not be able to grow there based on the rainfall. Um, but because you have that high water table and all those freshwater seepage that's powered by the, the aquifers of the mountain, the roots of the ulu tree are able to tap into the water table and persist in this really, really dry um, landscape by tapping the, the underground water. Yeah, you often hear about the tap root, right? So it goes down so deep. Interesting. Yeah. And Noah Kekueva says there's about eight ulu across Lahaina that's, that are remnants of the old breadfruit groves, and they're scattered throughout it. Um, he didn't tell me specifically the trees that he was treating are the actual remnants. Some may have been planted maybe five years ago. So there's this conversation about restoring natural landscapes, but the big question is always restoring it back to what? Do we want to restore it to the groves? Do we want to really take care of the banyan tree? Do we want to plant more native plants? And that's been a conversation, especially um, in the wake of the Lahaina fires. Um, some folks are saying we need to plant more native plants um, and keep them green, kind of like using it as a fire gate um, or a fire break in case of like future wildfires. And going back to the banyan tree, using this as a symbol of hope. You know, some experts are saying like they're f people are forgetting that there are native plants or there are ulu trees. And when you look at the banyan tree, it's not native. It's not invasive, but it's originally from India. It was actually a gift from India, but the person who planted it was a little controversial. Um, this banyan tree on Front Street was actually planted by William Owen Smith. He was an attorney general and he was controversial because he was part of the overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom. Wasn't the main person, um, or he wasn't alone in that, but he was a part of it. And that is, this has brought up mixed emotions in the Lahaina community. When I talked to cultural practitioner Anuheya Yagi, who lived in Lahaina for quite some time, she says the banyan tree has conjured up mixed emotions. Some good, some are bad. She respects the banyan tree as an organism, but it's really about the person who planted that tree. And when I've talked to Anuhea, when she talks about the historical context of Ulu and the fact that her ancestors have ate from these trees and now she has a brand new baby, she's feeding her baby those trees, it kind of brings her to tears. And she said it's important because we need to put more emphasis on Ulu trees. And I think the Lahui is, is really well aware of the Ulu tree's importance, not only in the past, but in terms of our food security and reconnectivity to the space in the future. Yeah, so whether it's an ulu tree or a banyan tree, both not native to Hawaii, but you know the fact that it or they have survived the fires is still an incredible thing, regardless of who planted them, you know, to begin with. But you know, you, you can see how people have some emotional um, 
issues, you know, with some of this. But yeah, the fact that it survived is still pretty amazing. The reporting process was really interesting too, because trying to find experts on on native trees in Lahaina in particular was kind of a challenge for me, especially someone who's been on Oahu for several years, even like talking to Rick Barboza, for example, or even other native plant experts, a lot of them have told me that they're not a fan of the banyan tree. Um, I won't go into detail on mm-hmm. what they said. Some it's uh, a little, um, not too happy about mm-hmm. it, but um, they want to put more emphasis on planting more native plants. and. Um, I think it's interesting because a lot of plants, uh, our native plants are in danger at this point as well. And just looking at the the work ahead that these experts are doing and actually planting more native plants and working on um, saving ulu trees is um, an important work that they have to do ahead. And I'm really excited to see the photos that Noah's supposed to send me on um, propagating uh, the ulu trees. I think it's really fascinating on the, the scientific effort in that. Yeah, that's remarkable. You know, I think that you can you can create 200 new babies, new keiki. And I think they're doing a better job because right now I've killed two <laughs> plants upstairs in my office right now. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it it's amazing, um, you know, what folks can, what the tree experts and the plant experts, uh, you know, can do. Uh, but, yeah, it's a, certainly a reset for the greenscaping of Lahaina. But thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That was HPR's Cassie Ordonio talking to us about the plans to help the greening of Lahaina's landscape. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Today, we're wandering through Honolulu's Chinatown, remembering a prominent businessman whose name can still be found on the exterior of a red brick two-story building built in 1909. If you look up the Queen Anne-style structure, you'll see the name El Aliong on the building located at the corner of King and Keikaliki Streets. It's home to a variety of businesses and merchants. The structure was dedicated in honor of Liang's successful career in being one of the founders of Chinatown. He was given the nickname Merchant Prince of Honolulu. He was also given special privileges in the community. For example, when Liang was on his deathbed and having hallucinations of demons, the Honolulu Police Department was dispatched to chase the demons away. Generations after his death, L. Ah Leong's great-granddaughter, Pam Chun, wrote a fictionalized version of his life. For today's Backyard Quiz, we want to know the name of that novel. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689. First one to get it right gets a HPR reusable tote bag.
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing housing for the homeless, including U.S. Vets, with its Kamaoku Kauhale Tiny Homes community. NairitHawaii.com. Today on The Daily, Palestinian militants launched a stunning and highly coordinated invasion of Israel over the weekend, killing more than 700 Israelis. It was the biggest attack against the country in 50 years, and it prompted Israel to declare war. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering a Master of Science program in travel industry management. More information online at scheidler.hawaii.edu. When I tell them that I'm doing fine watching shadows on the wall Don't you miss the big time baby you're no longer on the ball I'm just sitting here watching the wheels go round and round. I really love to watch them roll. The pandemic gave us a dose of reality when the Labor Department's computer system was overwhelmed by unemployment claims. So we made any progress updating our information and technology infrastructure. Honolulu Civil Beat pol- uh, political editor Chad Blair joins us to talk about that. Hi, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so we've got a story by Kevin Dayton that looks at a couple of contracts that aren't doing so well. Yeah, I guess an answer to the question that you were posing right up the top is no, we really haven't made too much progress. We're talking specifically in this story about what's taken five decades now to modernize modernize rather the computer and financial data systems that the state of Hawaii uses. And why is that important? Well, that includes accounts payable, that includes uh, the budget and finances, it includes travel and expenses, it includes fixed assets. But the problem with this contract, which was awarded just a couple years ago for over $16 million, is it doesn't seem to be working out. According to uh, Douglas Murdoch, he's the chief information officer for the state of Hawaii, he says the contractor could not meet the cost or the schedule or the performance parameters due to disagreements on the requirements as part of the specifics in the bid uh, and says that the Hawaii just doesn't have confidence in this vendor. The name of that vendor, they are from the mainland, they're called Labyrinth Solutions. So what they did is the state, or actually an executive uh, committee, terminated that contract. They did that for convenience, not cause. That resulted essentially in a settlement. So of that 16.5 million originally, $7.8 million in our money going to Labyrinth Solutions uh, for work that is not done yet and uh, is incomplete. So it is disappointing because we need to do better in these areas. Yes, we do. And the Douglas Murdoch is saying that they did get some of their money's worth. It wasn't a, a complete loss, but it sure sounds like that from, from the way that he describes it to Kevin. Uh, Murdoch actually, actually describes really failing in the basic needs. He calls it an an anomaly. He says basically the contracts and data systems that the state has has had in recent years have been pretty good. But here's the thing that makes you go, hmm, really? Because there is yet another contract uh, with the state. This is with the DOT, the Department of Transportation, and it's with the same company, Labyrinth Solutions. And it's similarly for 
millions of dollars, I think over $10 million for this one, awarded a couple of days ago. The contract's supposed to basically replace another antiquated system. In this case, it's DOT's antiquated highways financial uh, management system. But that, too, uh, has fallen behind, and there are concerns about whether, well, whether we're uh, really hiring the right people for these very complex things that are so essential to the way we run the state. And Kevin's story said that this DOT project was supposed to go live last summer. <laughs> yeah. And remember, uh, it's called H4, by the way. Good mm -hmm. name, right? H1, H2, <laughs> H3, H4. Uh, but uh, if you recall, for those of us who want to go back to uh, the, the David Ige years, there was a another contract uh, with a, a, a company that was terminated. There were legal issues involved. Essentially, that effort bombed. They couldn't get the thing running. I think another thing that raises flags is we've heard that Nevada has had similar problems with this Labyrinth Solutions company. Uh, Kevin was not able to reach them for comment, uh, but there are concerns that um, it, this company had a track record. It was publicized, and yet um, you know we still retain their services. Well, you know, I remember when uh, what was it Governor Abercrombie right was saying he, he was going <laughs> to hit a plan to modernize. Um, our information systems, and we had a uh, a SAR, right? The technology SAR at the yeah, time. Yeah, I forget the fellow's name. Yes, yeah, Sonny Bogwali, I think that's, was his name. That's right. And it, I and I remember being at that uh, press conference, and they were talking about, oh gosh, I think DOE, the Department of Education, had a a Wang computer that they were keeping alive, and it was like you know, it was really really old. Yeah, so, and, and we've been hearing these same things. You opened uh, the piece with the pandemic and the, the Labor Department's mm -hmm. challenges. And I mean, not only wings, but um, paper systems still being used. Oh, yes. Um, and and it, it makes it real frustrating because it is just, this is so obviously needs to be fixed. We need to be with the times. It looks like uh, Murdoch and company, or rather the administration, really, the Green administration, will probably have to go back to the legislature and ask for more funding. Uh, Sniffen says he's not as worried about this DOT contract. He thinks there has been uh, some progress, but bottom line, it's costing a lot of money uh, to overhaul these very, very ancient systems. Anybody that's toured the IT system of the state, which I did recently, it's, it's so true. It's like a, a time warp back to the 1970s. Yes, yeah, well, not on budget and not on time, right? Well, that yes. sounds familiar. Where yes. have I heard that refrain before? All right, well, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Civil Beat's political editor, Chad Blair, with today's Reality Check. You can read Kevin Dayton's story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Pacific Financial Navigators, formerly Janelle Israel and Associates in the Ala Moana Pacific Center, providing tax preparation and planning services at 808-942-8817. What might a nurse health and wellness coach do for you? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk about how the tools for self-empowerment for those dealing with a chronic disease can make a huge difference in overall health. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at mobi.com. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Sky brightness is perfect for viewing the skies this week, but what you might not see is a massive intergalactic explosion three billion light years away. We've got the details in your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer Time, our weekly look into the fascinating and massive universe surrounding our equally fascinating, although not so massive, planet, and also some things we could try to uh, spot in our island skies. As usual, turning to the expertise of Christopher Phillips, thrilled to have him on the line right now. Chris, welcome back. What you got this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this week, stargazers look out for Saturn in the southern sky after sunset. The moon this week will be passing through its new moon phase, and so sky brightness will be perfect for stargazing and spotting faint objects in the heavens. I don't think they're going to be able to spot this thing you've got for us this week. Sounds very exciting. Massive explosion kind of between galaxies? You got it? Yep, a massive intergalactic explosion. And it's been detected by the ZTF, or Zwicky Transit Facility, along with the Hubble Space Telescope. They've discovered a massive intergalactic explosion between two galaxies about three billion light years away. This remarkable event was the largest outburst of blue light in the universe, and it lasted only a few days. Now, while we often talk about exploding stars here on Stargazer, this is the first of its kind to have been observed in the space between galaxies, intergalactic space. And that would be because most of this stuff happens within galaxies, things like supernovas? Yeah, exactly. That's what makes this event very rare and very strange. Normally, we witness supernova and other large outbursts of energy within other galaxies, often in their arms or within the galactic core. The fact that this occurred in seemingly empty space between galaxies is quite curious. Man, I sure love how you guys say it. Supernova. Supernova. (laughs) (laughs) And what could be responsible for it? Well, because the space between galaxies is mostly devoid of gas, dust, and other matter that is normally associated with the late stages of a stellar evolution, this explosion must have been the result of something else, and we think that it's perhaps the result of a lone star being ripped apart by a black hole. I guess that would make sense, huh? Because we can't really see the black holes in the darkness between the galaxies. Yeah, exactly right. But it could also be the result of a collision between two massive neutron stars, which are also quite faint at a distance, an event known as a kilonova. And what's the frequency on seeing this kind of thing? 
Normally, these bright blue explosions occur within the arms of spiral galaxies, which is where you'd expect to find them. And they seem to occur about once every year. What do you think? Too late to uh, take a look at the location from it and learn something? Well, it's very faint, it's very remote, but hopefully not. And the next step would be to use the James Webb Space Telescope with its advanced optics to observe the location of the mysterious cosmic blast and hopefully learn more if we're not too late. Glad it doesn't involve a trip there. <laughs> that would take a long time. <laughs> it is uh, another fascinating edition of Stargazer with uh, astronomer Christopher Phillips joining us. Thank you so much, Chris. Yeah, welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. You can look for Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the Information Technology and Communication Primary Facility at McMurdo Station, Antarctica. Committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design, FerraroChoi.com. Water has powered Kauai in the past. Will it power its future? The Kauai Island Utility Cooperative is pursuing a multi-year lease for a new hydropower plant on the Waimea River, which would divert a rolling average of 11 million gallons of water a day. But community members pushed back, saying DLNR should require KIUC to complete a full environmental impact statement to investigate the project. The hydrologist Matt Rosner hopes KIUC completes an environmental impact statement. A lot of times we've used the terms renewable and green energy interchangeably. That's not always true. There are some hydropower projects out there that actually have pretty significant environmental impacts. The plantations diverted millions of gallons of water out of natural stream beds for irrigation and power, which continued long after the sugar era ended. They took away the water without anybody having any say about it. They really alienated a lot of Hawaiians from their land, all the plantations. Support energy and climate change coverage on HPR. Donate at hawaiipublicradio.org. And now it's time to turn the page on our backyard quiz answer. Earlier in the show, we told you about a man whose name is found on a two-story building in Honolulu's Chinatown District, located on the corner of King and Keikaulike Streets. On the facade of the red brick structure, you can still see the name of Hawaii's merchant prince, Lao Aliong. He was born in South China and is remembered as a prominent businessman and one of Chinatown's founders. But it wasn't always easy. He endured bankruptcy before he struck it rich as a merchant in Honolulu. He attained a lot of respect and clout in the community so much that the police department sent officers to his home to chase demons away when he was experiencing hallucinations on his deathbed. Years after Leong's passing, his great-granddaughter, Pam Chun, wrote a fictionalized account of his life. She titled the 2002 novel, The Money Dragon, which is the answer to today's backyard quiz. But we stumped you on that one. No winners today. If you have an idea for a quiz, send it to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. anthology of science fiction and fantasy stories from local authors is out on bookshelves now. They all take place in the Hawaiian Islands and not in a galaxy far, far away. The diverse short story collection is called Ike Papalua and features visions of mermaids, a deity in search of therapy, and other paranormal activities. 
Sam Fletcher is the editor of the anthology. He spoke with JCPR's Jason Ubai about his contemporary take on myths and legends. Kind of goes without saying, I'm I'm obviously like a big fan of science fiction, fantasy, horror. Um, I just really like speculative writing and speculative thought in general. I think it's really important. And so when I started working with Mutual, um, I had read King David Kalakwa's Myths and Legends. And what I thought was really cool about that was just the time that the book came out and kind of the way he was presenting these stories, it was very clearly kind of um, influenced by like Grimm's fairy tales and what was going on in the world. But what I really loved about it was, though it was presented like traditional kind of fairy tale type stuff, it was interwoven with very real, like verifiable history of Hawaii. So I just was very interested in that. And then they have Mutual Publishing has like a few other books that are kind of similar anthologies, but out of print now, um, Horror in Paradise, and, uh, you know, some of like Glenn Grant's old Hawaiian ghost stories, um, things like that. So I just thought, you know, what a cool opportunity it would be to like kind of survey what the writers are doing now and see what we can come up with, you know, now decades later. And so, yeah, so some of the authors um, I had reached out to, some of them had sent stories to me. And yeah, I just kind of came to this idea to, to Mutual and they, they thought it was a good idea, so. Can you tell me a bit about what you asked authors to, to write? Looking at this book, it's so diverse in terms of like the style of the stories and everything, and and that was on purpose. I mean, I kind of wanted to cast a wide net, um, and that's what I I told people. I was like, it had to have, um, well, first of all, it had to take place in Hawaii. Um, and what I think is really cool is that there's a story that takes place on every island, I believe, except Niihau. So I thought that was cool um, in terms of like the range of where these stories take place. Um, so I said it has to take place in Hawaii and um, has to do with like some sort of themes uh, in that way and then has to have a speculative element, so an element of science fiction, fantasy, or horror. Um, and that element could be, you know, as big or, or small. Um, and some of these stories we reprinted, some are originals. Um, so yeah, it was just kind of a mix of, of some of the stories that stood out, you know, in the past years and then some that they had sent to me that I, I just really liked or connected with. You know, science fiction and fantasy seem pretty out there and not really something that Hawaii is known for. Mm-hmm. So what, what what kind of response did you get from authors uh, to write stories in this genre? I see what you're saying in the terms of like, I guess, the the modern way that we look at science fiction and fantasy. You know, but I, I don't know. I think I think looking back, um, I think anybody um, coming here and like looking into the history here is like the obviously speculative storytelling is like so, so important. What what I would think was most surprising with the submissions were kind of the um, like I was touching on before the diversity of stories that came in. So like um, Alan Brenner, for example, who um, who had, you know, submitted um, or he, he had published, you know, um, best-selling novels, you know, Molokai Honolulu. Um, but he actually has, like, a background in, in speculative writing. Um, and the story that he um, that he had sent me was uh, from, like, a Twilight Zone anthology, um, you know, and he, he has a history with, you know, Batman comics um, and Wonder Woman, things like that. I thought that that was very cool that even maybe writers who had written about Hawaii um, but not necessarily, like, the speculative um, aspect were, were willing to take on that challenge for this. And then also um, another surprising thing that came in was so we have we have some of those um, you know heavy hitters who are like you know kind of bestsellers and have you know their stories in like uh, national science fiction and fantasy publications um, you, you know Alan Brenner um, A Atanasio um, Elia Don Johnson um, Lihua Parker you know on and on and on but also what was cool was um, this was an opportunity to publish some people's writing for the very first time um, so that was very cool there's one story in here. Um, 
Crystal Yanagahara, who is her first first story ever published, and she I loved her story. It was um, uh, about growing up, you know, mixed um, mixed Hawaiian, and just kind of what that was like in the playground and stuff. And she ends up being able to have sort of more or less a dialogue with her with her grandmother who passed away, who had. Um, left her like paranormal gifts and things like that. And it was able to like reflect on her experience in Hawaii and all of this stuff. So, um, um, you know, obviously uh, couldn't accept everything that turned in. I, I accepted, you know, actually a very small percentage of, of what I read, but um, I, I think what it ended up being was like a, a really, really good mix of, I didn't feel inclined to really only include, you know, people who had established careers. Um, I felt that there were a lot of very, good and interesting voices that were important that, um, you know, it was the first thing they ever published. So I thought that was really cool. The stories, like you mentioned, are just so varied. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I felt like some had elements of yeah, steampunk and just, uh, you, like you said, like paranormal things, um, myths and legends, horror. What do you think this says about the world and, and Hawaii? Yeah, I think that there, there really is. Um, that's like a good point. Like there really is just such a wide range of stories um you know whether you're into like sort of the quick pace action like you know love death and robot style like blood and gore that kind of stuff that's in here and then also you know if you like your slower stories about um you know romantic type stuff or or coming of age stories you know that that's also in here so i think there's kind of if you don't love the entire book there's something in here that everybody will like um and i think that that's very cool um and i also feel like as you were saying, when you kind of looking back, um, that there are stories that represent, as I was mentioning before, kind of these like sort of older like mythological and fairy tale style stories, all the way up to like cutting edge, futuristic, you know, science fiction, talking about very like contemporary or even what we imagine what could be contemporary, um, uh, you know, struggles or viewpoints. Um, and yeah, I mean, obviously, like it goes without saying, um, you know, Hawaii is a very um, you know, mixed place and the perspectives in the story are all over the place from, um, you know, there's obviously like native Hawaiian voices in there. There's um, like local non-native voices. There's voices of tourists. There's voices of military personnel. Um, so you you just get like this huge mix, which, um, yeah, I think is is, is kind of very telling about um, the writers here today um, and, and just maybe the people here today. Sam, you also wrote a story in this uh, collection, The Blues of You. Can you tell me about that story? Sure. Yeah. So basically, I mean, that story came together. Um, it was all kinds of things. So um, uh, I guess starting out, you know, at the same time um, uh, that I was working with Mutual, I was also working for a dive company. Um, I still work for a dive company. Um, and it, it's kind of sort of a cliche, the whole, um, we had a picture in there of one of those old hard hat divers um, kissing a mermaid. And I think you can find that a lot in like a lot of like gift shops and that kind of thing. So it's kind of a cliche, the whole like old hard hat diver mermaid trope. Um, And then I found out about this, you know, the first Navy submarine to ever sink was three miles off Diamond Head um, in 1915, the F4. Um, And it was like this unprecedented, you know, salvage of these hard hat divers. Um, I think it was like the deepest they'd ever gone. Um, They they didn't retrieve the men. 21 men died, but they were able to get everything out um, over the course of many months. Um, And it was just like very unprecedented kind of iconic use of these like hard hat dive suits. So just my wheels like started turning. Um, And then, you know, I think of. Um, you know, obviously, like the main character of my story um, from Virginia, you know, so he's 
uh, a Navy diver, not from here. So he's going to have all these preconceived sort of mythological concepts that are different from the ones that are established here. Um, so it just kind of like all that kind of came in, and I was like, what a what an interesting thing. Um, I believe it's like the the legend of um, Kauhuhu, the shark god, who he like slowly his punishment is like turning these people into sharks. Um, and I just thought, well, what if we had one of these navy divers down there at the time, and he had seen one of these slow transformations, a sacrifice from human to shark, but in the middle of that, with his preconceived notions from not being from here, he mistakes it as a mermaid. Um, and falls in love. So that that was kind of um, kind of trying to turn that trope over on its head and trying to pull all these things, real life history with you know established mythology here with kind of also preconceived notions of someone who's not from here. So I'm kind of trying to bring all these things together into a story that takes place um, in Oahu where I live. So, what do you think people will find most surprising by this collection? You know, what one of the things that I thought of, and this was conversations, um, you know, with people at Mutual Publishing too is just the idea of like, um, personally, obviously I'm, I'm super biased because you know, I'm a fan of this type of stuff. So I, I don't necessarily see science fiction and fantasy as such a, a niche thing. Um, you know, Star Wars, Harry Potter, Marvel movies, these are like the biggest franchises in the world. Um, but I understand like from like a readership perspective, um, it, it can seem that way sometimes. Um, and so one of the things when I set out to do this was I really wanted to be very inclusive with these stories. I wanted it to be like, you know, somebody who is just like, oh, I, I don't really like science fiction. It's like, well, um, you know, there's there's some things that are very, very loosely, um, you know, like as they all have some sort of element of that. But, um, you know, some are just your very classic um, kind of ghost stories or stories about um, like, you know, Darian Gee's story, Pele and Therapy, where um, uh, which is reprinted and um, but yeah I mean basically it's just one of those classic you know Paley sh- shapeshifter you learn something from her but what's cool is it's it's very modern and takes place on Big Island um, so yeah I mean I just I just feel like just that that sort of you know casting a wide net of something that um, you know me and my friends who are like very very interested in this type of stuff would be into you know um, kind of like <laughs> the monsters and that kind of stuff and then also um, you know, on the other hand, hand of the spectrum, you know, something that like your mom might like, you know, that was definitely in the back of my mind um, is like, is like even my mom being like, mm, this story is weird, which I love the weird stories, but it's like, you know, let's throw something in for everybody, you know? So I think, I think that that, that might be a surprise um, for some people, even who are like hardcore fans and not hardcore fans. It's like, um, well, you know, this is kind of, I think everybody will come across from it with some of these stories were different than I was expecting going into it. So that was kind of the goal. And that was Sam Fletcher, editor of the new fiction anthology, E.K. Papalua. He was talking with HPR's Jason Ubai. The book was published by Mutual Publishing and can be found anywhere you buy books. does it for us for right now. Tomorrow we talk about fire prevention. What can you do to protect your home and your community? Call our talkback line 808-792-8217. Share your thoughts about the reopening of tourism on Lahaina and the islands. Find the conversation 
segments on our website or wherever you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of The Conversation.